Okay, so we are in Daniel chapter 9 tonight. We are going to finish the book of Daniel next week. We're going to do 10, 11, and 12 in one shot. We're not going to go line by line, but we are going to... It's all one vision and an explanation. So we're going to do all that next week. In the second half of the book of Daniel so far, Daniel's received two visions, and he's had them explained by angelic figures. And both visions pointed to Daniel's people living within empires... And in the days of the final empire, an enemy symbolized by a little horn would gain power and make war on the saints. But after a time of tribulation, the little horn would be defeated and the saints would be vindicated. Now, in Daniel 9 tonight, there isn't a vision like in 7 and 8. Instead, most of the chapter is Daniel praying a prayer of confession on behalf of Israel and asking for God's mercy. And after he prays, he's visited by Gabriel once again who will prophesy about Israel's future. So that's where we are tonight in Daniel 9. Let's pray and and we'll get into the word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time in Daniel. And we pray that you would open our minds so that we can understand what you want to communicate to us through your word tonight. I pray that everything that I say would be helpful and wouldn't be vague or confusing. And I pray that we would take it into our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and turn to verse 1 in Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, Namely, 70 years. Okay, so this is Darius from chapter 6 in Daniel. And remember that Darius received the kingdom after Belshazzar was killed, and that was the end of the Babylonian Empire. It gave way to the empire of the Medes and Persians. And you might remember that odd note at the end of chapter 5 where it says that when Darius received the kingdom, he was 62 years old. And it's odd because you get the ages of the... Uh, kings of Judah and of Israel, but you typically don't get the ages of the kings from pagan powers. But we're told that Darius is 62 years old, and it seems like an odd thing to be told, but it will have relevance later in this chapter, but I just wanted to remind us of it uh, for now. Daniel perceives in the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that 70 years must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. And this is specifically in Jeremiah 25. It's from verses 8 to 12. And this is where God warns Judah that the covenant curses are going to be enacted. And so this is in Jeremiah 25. After he talks about the covenant curses being enacted, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. And against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, 
making the land an everlasting waste. So Judah and the surrounding nations would serve the king of Babylon for 70 years, and then Babylon would be punished, and that takes the form of the Medes and Persians coming in, and basically that's the end of the Babylonian Empire. That's the punishment that God had promised. What's important for us is to realize that when that happens, when Babylon has been dethroned, the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied would be over. The 70 years would be completed. And so Daniel realizes in, in reflecting on the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, or maybe he already knew that with Darius now in charge and the Medes and Persians in charge, the 70 years are complete. So what does that mean, that the 70 years are complete? In Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So putting it all together, Daniel perceives that with Darius now in charge, the Babylonians are out of power, the 70 years have passed, and if God is going to fulfill his promise, then he will come and take the exiles back to their land. So it's significant that the Medes and Persians are in power because the 70 years have passed, and now maybe Judah can go back to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. So verse 4 says that Daniel made confession, and, and this is a relatively rare Hebrew word, but it's one that's used significantly in Leviticus 26. And in Leviticus 26, it warns of the covenant curses. So we're talking about the covenant curses again, that if Israel didn't walk in God's ways, it would be rooted out of the land. It would go into exile and the land would lie desolate. But also in 26, it says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So all the covenant curses happened, and that's why they went into exile. The northern, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were both taken into exile, and the land lay desolate. But in the law, God made provision for Israel that if the people of God confessed their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, God would remember the covenant. And so Daniel's prayer here in 9 is a prayer of confession. It's the very kind of prayer that God was saying in Leviticus that they could pray and God would bring them back to the land. He's confessing the sin of his people and he's confessing the sins of his forefathers so that God will remember the covenant. And it comes at the end of the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah. So he's hoping that now Judah can go home. Next verse. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, 
We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. One thing I want us to note here is that Daniel includes himself in the sins of his people. He includes himself in the sins of his people. He doesn't confess Israel's sin and leave himself out of it as if he's exempt. Daniel says, we have sinned and done wrong. Daniel didn't do the, the wicked, idolatrous acts that had led Israel into exile. But he identifies with the people who did those acts. And he participates in their suffering and punishment, wearing the sackcloth and ashes. Continuing on. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So historically, plenty of nations had been overthrown and had their temples and their cities destroyed. This was not an uncommon thing. But Daniel is recognizing that the desolation of Jerusalem was something entirely different. Because in enacting the covenant curses, God was overthrowing his own people. And he was using another nation, the nation of Babylon, to overthrow his own people. Never before had that happened. Never before had a God been said to vindicate himself against a rebellious people. And so Judah had sinned and had gone into exile. But Daniel seems to say that even in exile, Judah has not learned its lesson. He says that Judah has not turned from its iniquities and it's not gained insight from God's truth. And so this ends the confessional part of Daniel's prayer. And now he's going to appeal to God to act. So verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, our, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. 
For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel asks God to make his face shine upon the desolate sanctuary. And he's invoking the blessing of Aaron in number six, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Daniel asks for blessing. And he appeals to God's mercy, not Judah's righteousness. He says, we are not righteous. We are appealing to your mercy. The punishments fell on a rebellious people, not on a righteous people. And verse 19 really gives a summary of Daniel's prayer. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. And Daniel asks God to delay not. He says, oh my God, we have sinned and we have suffered as we have deserved to, but the 70 years are over. The 70 years are up and you've promised to bring us back after the 70 years are up. So now in your mercy, please come deliver us. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel had appeared to Daniel in the previous vision in chapter 8, and now he returns. And Gabriel is going to make Daniel understand the vision through insight and understanding. And Daniel didn't have a vision specifically like the ones in 7 and 8, but he had perceived in Jeremiah the number of years of captivity And Gabriel's going to make him understand that and more besides. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So Judah has spent 70 years serving Babylon, But now Daniel's told that in addition to that 70 years, there will be 70 weeks. And what we come to realize as we read more of it is that it's 70 weeks of years. It's 70 weeks of years, so it's 70 times 7, which comes to 490. So 490 years have been decreed about Daniel's people. It doesn't just end with the 70 years. And the 490 years uh, begins when Cyrus gives his decree to send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And it will, the 490 years will kind of near its end with Jesus's ministry and death and resurrection and ascension. And then it will reach its final conclusion when Jerusalem is sacked and the temple is destroyed in AD 70. That's the end of the age. And the 70 weeks of years will accomplish six things, it says, and they're presented in two groups of three. So the first group of three is that the 70 weeks of years will finish the transgression. It'll put an end to sin, which is better translated as put an end to the sin offering. And it will atone for iniquity. And so when Jesus gives his life in Israel's place, their sin will be covered over. 
And that will put an end to the sin offering. There will no longer be any need for the sacrificial system anymore. Jesus will have atoned for and covered over their sin. That's the atonement part. But then Jesus will also bring in everlasting righteousness. And he will seal both vision and prophet. And he will anoint a most holy place. And Jesus did all that. He established God's righteous kingdom. And in sealing both vision and prophet, Jesus fulfilled everything that was ever said by vision or prophet. But what about anointing a most holy place? Because Jesus didn't come and and, and set up a new temple with a new most holy place. And yet we know that his followers, and we are his followers, we are the place where God's presence is. We're the place where God's presence dwells, like he dwelt in the most holy place. And so God anointed the church as the place where his presence dwells. And Ephesians 2.22 says, In Jesus you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And Paul couldn't have written those words before Jesus came. The people of God were not a dwelling place for God by the Spirit until Jesus came. And Gabriel tells Daniel that all this is going to happen at the end of 70 weeks of years or 490 years. Now, beginning with verse 25, it gets really confusing really fast. And that's the thing about chapter 9. It's been very, Daniel's prayer is very straightforward. It's not that hard to understand. And then beginning with verse 25, it gets quite weird. Um, I considered punting on these last verses and just kind of giving maybe a one paragraph, you know, flyby. But we're going to go through it. And uh, I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions that, that arise, but that's okay. So verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince... There shall be seven weeks. So there's a lot of debate about where the 490 years begin. And there isn't anything like a consensus among scholars about any of this stuff. If you begin the 490 years with Cyrus sending the Jews back to build the temple, or to, yeah, to rebuild the temple, you come about 87 years short of Jesus' death. And you come about 127 years short of the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And this is something that if we were doing a Bible study or if we were doing like an adult education class or something like that on Daniel, we'd get real deep into the weeds on the 70 weeks. But that's really beyond the scope of a sermon. So I'm not going to try to give the authoritative interpretation of the 70 weeks that answers all questions forever and there are no more questions. Um, instead, I'm going to try to give kind of the broad strokes. So 70 weeks of years gives us 49 years or... Seven cycles of Sabbath years. Remember in the law, every seven years was a Sabbath year for the Israelites. And then in Leviticus 25, it says, after seven cycles of Sabbath years, there would be a jubilee year. And in the jubilee year, the slaves are freed and land is returned to their rightful owners. And so the 49 years, the seven weeks of years, is a time period leading up to a jubilee and this time period probably does begin with Cyrus sending the Jews back to build the temple. Um, and then the 49 years probably ends with the temple built, uh, in which there's a jubilee. The slaves have been freed. Israel is no longer serving the nation of Babylon. They're now freed. They're back in their land. And they're no, they're no longer slaves. They're back in their land. And as far as the anointed one, a prince to come, um, it's not very clear. It could refer to Nehemiah. At the end of Nehemiah, he says that he established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in their work. And I have provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. That would sound like an anointed person at the end of the 49 years. 
So this is a period of time in which we have godly leaders like Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have uh, prophets like Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. But then they leave the scene at the end of these 49 years. And then it says we have 62 weeks of years, and that's where God is largely silent. And that's probably the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So, uh, continuing on. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. So the best way to understand the 62 weeks of years, I think, without shoehorning events where they don't belong, is to take that time period as symbolic. It's a symbolic period of time, not a literal one. Um, This is where I'm going to bring back that Darius the Mede was 62 years old when he became king. Uh, of the Medes and Persians. And Daniel prays and receives this vision, or he receives this explanation and visit from Gabriel in the first year of Darius the Mede, when he's 62 years old. And there will be 62 weeks of years, and that's why I think the number is symbolic. I think it's pointing to God's people living in a troubled time among the empires. Among the, the empires beginning or from that point with the Medes and Persians and then on to Greece and then on to Rome. And this symbolic block of time goes from the end of the Old Testament until an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the best candidate here is Jesus. Jesus is the best candidate for the one who's anointed and is cut off and has nothing. He's cut off and has nothing as he dies on the cross. And this is all at the end of the seven weeks plus the 62 weeks or the 69 total weeks of years so far. Are you hanging with me so far? All right. Continuing on. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So we're told that there's a prince who is to come, and we don't know, is this a good prince or is this a bad prince? And verse 27 says that this prince shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So that suggests that this prince who is to come is an enemy. Remember in Daniel 8, the little horn takes away the regular burnt offering from the prince of the host, who's the rightful high priest. So probably an enemy, this prince who is to come. Because those are very similar actions, and because the Herods and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... They all partnered together and they covenanted together against Jesus in the early church. I think the little horn from Daniel 7 and 8 and the prince who is to come here in Daniel 9, they're all pointing to the same person, the same group of people. They all do the same things. It says there will be war to the end. We're reminded that the little horn makes war on the saints. It's all the same crowd, just dressed up in different language to emphasize different angles. It says they make a covenant for one week. And for half a week, they put an end to sacrifice and offering. And remember that the anointed one, Jesus, has been cut off. Jesus has died, he's been raised, and he's ascended at the end of the 69th week. In the first half of this one week of years, so three and a half years, there's persecution against rightful worship. This is the prince who is to come and those in league with him making war on the saints, the early church. Making war on the early church. So remember that the church was heavily persecuted in the first few years after Jesus ascended to heaven. The church worshipped Jesus, and the rebellious Jews in power fought against them. 
That's the first half of the 70th week, persecution against the early church. We're not actually told what happens in the second half of the week, the second three and a half years. Some think that points to a final judgment to come, but I think there's a delay that happens between the first half of the week and the second half of the week, and that that delay was caused by the death of Stephen. Stephen very likely died three years after Jesus was crucified. And as he died, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And I think it's plausible that this intercession on behalf of his murderers delays the second half of the week, the second three and a half years. Because of Stephen, God has mercy on those who are persecuting the saints. But then, continuing on in 9, And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. The rest of the week does get finished. And the one who makes desolate is probably the fourth beast, the Roman Empire, which destroys Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And the Jewish war, or what's called the Jewish revolt, which was at the beginning of the end, occurred, it began in AD 66, which is roughly, it's about three and a half years before the final end when the temple was destroyed and the city was sacked. So the second half of the week does come. And the desolator Rome, it will also come to an end. We said a couple of weeks ago, the little horn is, bulled up, is uh, burned up and the beasts prolong their life for a time. And the end is the end of the stage in history where God's kingdom is set up through the four successive empires. That all comes to an end. So here's the 70 weeks of years in overview, in brief. Seven weeks, 49 years to restore and build Jerusalem. That's Cyrus sending the people back to build the temple that culminates in Jubilee. A symbolic 62 weeks of years, at the end of which an anointed one is cut off. That's the period between the Testaments culminating in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And then one final week, seven years. And the first half is Jewish persecution of the early church, culminating in Stephen's death, after which there's a delay. And then the final half of the week is the Jewish war, which begins in 66 and culminates in the overthrow of Jerusalem in 70. Now, all that's a lot of detail, and you might be wondering what the payoff is. Why, why is it important to know that? How, um, how the 70 weeks of years plays out is very similar to what we saw in 7 and 8. So why is Gabriel sent to tell this to Daniel? Well, I mentioned Jeremiah 29 earlier, God's promise to bring his people out of exile and back into the land. And what follows that, what follows 29.10, is a very familiar verse, Jeremiah 29.11, which is often dislodged from its context and, and meant to mean something that doesn't mean what it meant, if you can follow that. But it's part of, of the message of covenant love and faithfulness to Daniel and his fellow people of God. And so this is what it says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God wants Daniel to know that his people have a future and a hope. There will be an end to transgression and to sin. The kingdom will be established and the people of God will be a place where God's presence dwells. And God wants Daniel to know this because, as Gabriel says, you are greatly loved, Daniel. He wants him to know that his people have a future and a hope. Okay, so that's, that's our run through the text. And I have two applications. Um, the first one is that confession of sin is essential to our relationship with God. Confession of sin is essential to our relationship with God.
we see confession and action in Daniel 9. And I want to point out a couple of aspects of Daniel's confession. As I mentioned earlier, Daniel includes himself in Israel's sin. He didn't personally commit the serious sins that sent Israel into exile, but he doesn't distance himself from those sins. He recognizes that he is part of the people of God, and the people of God had sinned. I think this is instructive for us, especially if we're reluctant to discuss the church's sins or our nation's sins. If we have a tendency to exclude ourselves from those things and not identify ourselves with the nation in which we live and the church in which we are part of. Second, Daniel lists several kinds of sins, from general impurity to serious rebellion. I think this tells us that we're not to save confession for just the biggies. We don't just come to God and confess when we have seriously screwed up. A well-tuned conscience can signal when we've crossed any line, and we can recognize it and acknowledge it before God in confession. Also, Daniel confesses that the punishment of exile was due to rebellion. He says that the consequences were right. God was right to do what he did. Israel was not punished unfairly. It had rebelled, and the punishment fit the crime. And I think this is instructive for us when we think that God is punishing us unfairly, even though we kind of know in the back of our minds that we're not completely free from guilt. And finally, Daniel's confession paves the way for reconciliation and hope. We've been reconciled to God through our faith in Jesus. And even when we do sin, we stand in a reconciled relationship with God. But we all know what it's like to have sin between us and another person. I think many of us can relate to the parent-child relationship and, and how this works out. The child knows that he or she has done something wrong, and the parent knows that the child has done something wrong. And the child loves the parents, and the parents love the child. But until there's confession of that wrong, that thing is still going to sit between the two. And the relationship is not going to be quite right. And so confession of sin and even the enactment of punishment removes that barrier. And it gets things out in the open. And, and it, it creates, uh, it, it removes that from between the parent and the child. Does that make sense? First um, John 1, 6 and 7 says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are already reconciled to God. But if God seems distant to you, get honest with yourself. Confess your sins before him, both sins that seem small and sins that seem large, maybe even too large to say out loud. Get honest with God about your sins. 1 John 1, 8-9, continuing on, says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The hardest thing about confessing sin is that we have to acknowledge that we're not as good as we want to be. When we confess sin, we, we acknowledge that we're not as good as we want to be, and that's disappointing, it's embarrassing, and it makes us feel small, and of no value. But John goes on to say, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have the perfect man on our side, and the Father sent him on our behalf. So all heaven is for us. But we have to come into the light. We need to make confession of our sin, individual and corporate. That's part of our ongoing walk with God. Does that make sense? The second point of application is that you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. Daniel's prayed a prayer of confession and grief over his people's sin and punishment. And when Gabriel comes to him, he says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. And in chapter 10, an angelic figure will twice say to Daniel, Daniel, you are a man greatly loved. And I think it's a reminder to us as well. You are greatly loved. We're all following the master, the Lord Jesus. And Daniel's a figure who points ahead to Jesus. And as Daniel was greatly loved, and God wanted him to know it, God wants you to know that you're greatly loved as well. And that's the flip side of confession. We're as honest with ourselves as we can be, but we also need to remember that we stand in grace and we're greatly loved. Amen? Amen.